So here's the question. Are you guys ready for Christmas? You don't look very festive. I mean, look at that, huh? 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 You guys should light up. If you know Jesus, you should just light up like me, right? Now, why am I wearing this beautiful outfit? This is what happens, ladies, by the way, when you let your husbands dress themselves. I don't know exactly what age you're allowed to dress yourself as a man, right? I mean, Jeremiah, you look like this every week, right? Why would I do this? Because I think this is a great representation of what happens to many of us in this crazy season that we call Christmas. We try to grab everything that, that the world tells us has to do with Christmas and we just throw it all together. And what do we end up with? An absolute ugly mess. You see, this weekend as we continue in our Christmas series, Simplifying the Season, we come to this amazing woman named Anna. And her whole life is summed up in three verses that tell us who she was, what she was looking for, and how she was changed after she found it. And I wonder if your life or my life was summed up in the Bible in three verses. What would it say about you? You see, Anna simplified the season because she made it about the Savior. And every single one of us The truth is we're looking for something, right? Or someone. The question becomes this. Where are we looking and what are we looking for? You see, Anna reveals not just the treasure but the pleasure of the Christmas season because it is about Jesus Christ. Turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 2 starting in verse 36. Luke 2, 36. Anna was a prophet and was also there in the temple, and she was the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher, and she was very old. Her husband died when they had been married only seven years. Then she lived as a widow to the age of 84, and she never left the temple, but stayed there day and night, worshiping God with fasting and prayer. And she came along just as Simeon was talking with Mary and Joseph, and she began praising God, and she talked about the child to everyone who had been waiting expectantly for God to rescue Jerusalem. You see, it's here that Luke starts with, number one, the person of Anna. And he reveals several significant facts about her life. And and the first significant thing that he reveals here is that she was a prophet. This has to do with her calling. You see, in the Old Testament, there are five women that were called prophets or prophetesses. Two of the most famous, one is Miriam, who was the sister of Moses and Aaron. The other is Deborah, who was a judge. When we get to the New Testament, what's interesting is there are only two that are mentioned. One is Anna. The second is the temptress Jezebel, who is a self-promoting prophetess. She's not really a prophet. She just says she is. You see, the word here for prophet is not somebody who foretells the future, but someone who is proclaiming the truth about God. She is the one who is sharing the good news, as we will see a little later. Second interesting thing is her name. Anna is the Greek form of the Hebrew word Hannah, which means grace. 
And as you and I think of Anna in the New Testament and Hannah in the Old Testament, both of these women, as we study them out, were both women of prayer and also women of fasting. The next interesting thing about her life is her past, her heritage. She is of the tribe of Asher. Why is that significant? Because you remember that after the three kings, Saul, David, and Solomon, the kingdom becomes divided between north and south. And ten of the tribes, including the tribe of Asher in the north, and the other two are in the southern part of the kingdom. And there comes a point where these ten tribes sort of reject God and they want to do their own thing and they're living in rebellion. And God, through the king Hezekiah, sends messengers to them to repent and to return to him or they will be carted off into captivity. And you know what happens. They, they laugh at the messengers. They make fun of them. Isn't that what happens in our day today? That people have this incredible opportunity to return to God, to have a right relationship, and they just sort of laugh like it's a joke. And, and they often make fun of the messengers. And so the Assyrians come in, and God was serious, and there is a serious side to life. And, and you and I have this opportunity to make decisions while we're alive, and there comes a point when it's too late. And they end up carted off into captivity, except for a couple of men who, Scripture says, humbled themselves. And what's interesting is they were from three tribes. One of those tribes, the tribe of Asher. In other words, a few, just a handful of men from the tribe of Asher humbled themselves, repented, returned to God, and served him in the sanctuary. And I wonder what would have happened to Anna if her ancestors from the tribe of Asher had rejected God completely? What kind of a heritage are we going to leave our kids? We, we talk all the time about leaving our kids money and inheritance, right? Like the most important thing our kids need is money. But you see, more than inheritance, we need to think about what kind of a legacy, what kind of a heritage are we going to leave them? When it comes to your kids, do you want the best for them? And what is the best? Is it money? Or is it the message of Jesus Christ? Is it the Messiah? When it comes to your grandkids, what do you want for them? If Jesus tarries, what about your great-grandkids and great-great-grandkids? What kind of a legacy do you want to leave? Now, some of you know this, that obviously I don't really use notes when I preach, but I handwrite every single sermon. And they're really tiny, and I can read them. Now, why would I handwrite every single sermon and fill Bibles and stick them on a shelf? It's kind of a weird thing to do. Isn't that just kind of a waste of time? If you're not going to use those notes to preach, here's why. This is what I'm going to hand to my kids someday. Stacks of Bibles that will get split between my three kids. This will be their, their heritage. This is the legacy that I want to leave them, the Word of God, what God has impressed upon my heart and caused me to walk out before Him as I lived on this planet. And then they will hand those to my grandkids. If Jesus tarries, my great-grandkids, and maybe great-great-great-grandkids. You see, somewhere down the line, it's possible that I'll have one of my ancestors that doesn't know Jesus. And maybe they'll find out about great-great-grandpa Giles who came to America from England via Africa and, 
And he was a preacher, and he wrote a whole bunch of stuff. And there's something about actually physically looking at someone's handwriting. You see, this isn't printed. This was actually physically done. It ties us to that person. And there's the possibility that somewhere down the line, when I'm no longer here, they will read one of these messages, maybe a hundred years from now, and hear about the grace of God and hear about the love of Jesus Christ and give their life to Jesus. The question that you and I need to ask ourselves is what kind of a legacy are we going to leave? Well, that depends on the life that we're going to live and lead right now. Psalm 127 verse 3 says that children are a gift from the Lord. They are a reward from Him. Children born to a young man are like arrows in the warrior's hands. How joyful is the man whose quiver is full of them. Do you notice there, parents, that it says that as we mold and shape our kids, that we are warriors, not worriers? How many of us today are trying to mold our kids through worry instead of molding them for war? Now, this is a quiver. This is actually from uh, the Bushmen who are in the Kalahari Desert, and it's an animal skin, and they would sling this on their back. And they carry their bow, they carry their arrows, they carry all the little tools that they need to do life in the desert. But here's what's interesting about arrows. When you and I look at an arrow, they all kind of seem the same. But they're not, because they're cut out of different saplings, and there are no two saplings the same, just as there are no two kids that are the same. And so as that warrior takes that sapling, and he starts to shave it and mold it, so that it will be balanced for the purpose of what? So it will fly true and straight. Because you see, an arrow that's not going to fly straight is sort of worthless. It's really not going to fulfill its intended purpose. And how many of us today are not molding and shaping our kids for them to fulfill their intended purpose? Or how many of us are trying to have a cookie-cutter parenting sort of plan where we just parent all the kids the same? Here's the reality Just as there are no two arrows that are the same, and they all have to be molded and shaped differently to allow them to fly. So the same is true of your kids. And you need to ask this question. When God knit my kids together in their mother's womb, who did he make? What's their personality? What are their likes? What's their temperament? And how do I take all of that and shape that arrow in such a way that it will fly true? Because here's the reality. Your home is this quiver. It is the place where those arrows reside, not so that they can look good, falling apart, but so that they, when the warrior is ready, can be pulled out and released and sent ahead of him. You and I need to recognize that our kids aren't going to stay in the quiver forever, right? And for some of you at that young stage of parenting, you're in your heart, you're going, amen, right now. They're not going to be in the home when they're 40. You just keep preaching it. I'm ready to launch them now. Not quite yet, you aren't, because they're not ready to fly. But you and I need to be asking ourselves a question, how are we molding and shaping them? Because here is the ultimate purpose that God has for our kids, and he has a plan for them, and that is not just that they would fly straight, but that they would hit the target. And when they hit the target, they would make the maximum impact possible. And what is that target? 
That target is the world. You see, you and I are sending our kids ahead into a time that we will not see. And one of the questions we need to ask is what flight will they take? What impact will they make? The next interesting piece of information about Anna is both her purity and her pain. And there's two tough topics that we got to deal with here. The King James tells us a little bit of interesting information about her. It says that she was married for seven years from whence she was a virgin. In other words, she chose God's plan for purity. Now we need to talk about a tough topic, and that's sex. God's incredible gift that he has given to us. Now, some of you parents just took a big breath. You're holding it. You're a little freaked out. Your eyeballs are going to pop out of your head. Just breathe, because I'm going to keep it PG. But you need to understand this. Our kids need to hear about this gift from the Word of God, not the world. Because how is the world going to fill in the blanks when it comes to this gift that God gives them? We already know what they're doing with the gift. They're trashing the gift. So if, if you think that they're going to share this gift with your kids like it is a treasure and something to be valued, you're kidding yourself. And some of us, we're so afraid of talking about the incredible gifts that God has given us because somehow we're embarrassed about that. We don't quite know how to go about it. And so we default to just letting the world fill in the blanks for our kids. You know what the world does with this incredible gift? They're casual about it. They're careless with it. We call it casual sex. Let me tell you something. There's no such thing as casual with God's gift. God's gift was not intended to be casual or careless, but to connect. And that can only happen within the covenant of a marriage. And here's what we're doing today as a society. We're believing the lie that this covenant of marriage is this old archaic covenant that doesn't work anymore. And we're going to cast it off and we're going to be enlightened and we're going to be smarter than the previous generation. I don't know about you, but it was a little cold last night. And so at my house, we have a wood stove and we burn wood and it's an awesome kind of heat. But let me ask you this question. If you read in the paper tomorrow that my house burned to the ground because I made the fire on the floor instead of in the firebox, would you call me enlightened or would you call me a fool? Here's the reality. It's the same fire, right? Church, it's the same flame. It's the same sex. The difference is that one is within the confines of this covenant called marriage. In the confines of a firebox. Why is it today that we seem to understand the need to put this powerful gift of fire within the firebox? But we don't understand the same thing when it comes to this flame that God gives us in our marriage called sex. You see, here's what happens when I make the fire in the firebox. I get all of the blessing without the burn. You know what happens when you and I engage in casual sex? When we take away the confines of marriage, we experience all the burn without the blessing. Oh, sure, it seems exciting at first until we're running around in a panic and the house is on fire. And people are getting hurt. And people are getting burned. We all know, and I want to encourage especially our our younger people, but all of us within that covenant of marriage to be pure. 
Because here's the reality. We know what the world says about virgins. Let's just be honest for a moment. The world makes fun of them. Okay? The world laughs at virgins, but do you see what the Word of God does? It lifts them up. I would rather be laughed at by the world and lifted up by the Word of God than I would be liked by the world and laughed at for being a fool before God the Father. And so I want to encourage you to make that commitment for purity. And some of you, you've stepped over the line, and, and the, the enemy's going to lie this whisper in your life. You're no longer virgin. It doesn't matter. There's nothing you can do. So just keep going down the path you've gone. No, you can repent. You can return to God, and you can make that commitment in your heart to say, you know what, I want to be passionate about purity. And I want to wait. I want to do things the way that God's called me to do things. Because here's the thing. Anna experienced pain in her life, but it wasn't a result of, of her not being pure. And some of us today, we are inflicting pain on our life because we won't follow God's plan. Now, the second topic that we have to talk about that's a little tough is her pain. She lived with her husband for seven years, and then he died. Some of you know how hard that is. You have lost a spouse. You are a widow, a widower, and it is Christmas time, and you feel very alone. And you miss that person. And you look around and you see these marriages where people are just fighting with one another. And it breaks your heart. And here's why. Because you know that that time with that spouse is limited. And what you would love for them to understand at Christmas is for them to start to treasure each other instead of trashing each other. Because they don't know how much time they have together. You see, Anna reveals that it's possible to live a pure life, but it's probably not possible to live a pain-free life. And I think today we would rather live a pain-free life than a pure life. A happy life rather than a holy life. And so some of us believe faultily that, that God owes us a pain pass because we're following his plan. Can I tell you something about Paul? The great apostle Paul was following God's plan and he experienced great amounts of pain. Anna was following God's plan and she experienced great amount of pain. And if you and I believe that, that God owes us a pain pass just because we're following his plan, then we need to understand that we're following a false gospel, a prosperity gospel, not the real gospel. Because God doesn't guarantee us a pain-free life but he does guarantee us a productive life if we follow his plan. And here's the good news. God's plan is always bigger than your pain. That you don't have to get hung up on your hurts, that you don't have to be a, poison, a person that allows your life to become poisoned by that pain, that instead of getting bitter, you can bless people like Anna did. The next interesting thing that he tells us here is her age. And he sort of breaks etiquette here because it's really not polite to talk about a woman's age. Right, ladies? You see, there's this interesting thing about women. And guys, you need to choose your words carefully. You don't say weird, you say interesting. You don't say old, you say mature. So this interesting thing about women is that when they're young, they have no problem telling you their age. I'm 10, I'm 10 and a half, I'm 10 and three quarters, I'm, I'm 10 and in one day I'm going to be 11, Right? You see, it's because they're wanting to mature, and there's this age in their mind that they're shooting for. But here's what's interesting. Once they reach that age and start to move past that age, right, ladies? We don't want to talk about it anymore because we're past the point we were shooting for. 
until we get to a certain age where all of a sudden it becomes okay again to talk about how old we are because now there's a respect and a level of maturity that comes with that. Now, nobody really knows what that magical age is that women are shooting for. But you will know, guys, if you ask how old she is and she has moved past that by the look that she gives you. And my encouragement is to stop talking and to start running. Okay? So Anna had reached this magical age where now she's old enough that we can kind of tell people how old she is. What's not clear here in the Greek is whether she was 84 or whether she had been a widow for 84 years. The Greek can be interpreted either way. So let's say it was the latter. Let's say that she had been a widow for 84 years. Most likely she would have gotten married at age 14 in that culture. She was married to her husband for seven years. Mathematicians are working it out, 105 years old, right? Regardless of whether she was 84 or 105, here's the reality. She didn't retire from serving God. We have so bought into a retirement mentality in our culture, and it seeped into the church. And so we squirrel money away, we squirrel money away, so that someday when we no longer have a paycheck and we don't have to work, we can go do whatever we want. How does that fit with God's will? Now, you can retire from a career, but you don't retire from Jesus Christ. There's only two ways you can retire from Jesus. Number one, Jesus comes back. Number two, you die. If you don't know yet, Jesus hasn't returned yet. We're still looking for that. And, and for some of you, it may be debatable as to whether you died yet or not, okay? But if you get up and you walk out of here today, you're not dead. Therefore, you should still be serving Jesus Christ. Can I remind you that Moses was 80 years old and Aaron was 83 when God called them to go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go? What if Moses had said, and we know he argued a little bit with God because he was afraid of public speaking, especially in front of a guy like Pharaoh. But what if he had said, oh, I'm sorry, God, you know, I retired from serving you like 10 years ago. Yeah, I'm doing my own thing now. It's awesome. Just loving it. Things are going so good since I I chose to do my own thing. Can I remind you that Noah was in his 500th year when God called him to build the ark? Oh, I'm sorry, God, I don't, yeah, I don't do woodworking for you anymore. I, it's for myself, it's kind of a hobby in the backyard, and yeah, I'm retired. It's great. I just whittle away my time. He didn't say that, did he? Can I remind you that Caleb was 85 when he asked Joshua as they entered into the promised land for the area where the giants lived because he wanted to go kick them out of the promised land? You see, 40 years earlier, he had gone into the promised land as a spy, one of 12. Only he and Joshua believed that through the power of God, the giants could be slayed, that they could be overcome, that they could be kicked out of the promised land. And the other 10 didn't believe God. And because of disobedience and disbelief, for 40 years, they wandered in the desert. And you know what Caleb did every single morning? Push-ups. He was working out, and he was getting himself ready for the day when they finally got to go in there, and he could look at Joshua and say, Joshua, I don't want that easy ministry. I want the tough stuff. Because I want our people to know that the giants can't just stomp around and cause fear in our lives. And he was 85 years old. I want to be like Caleb. 
that if, if God allows me to live to age 85, even if I'm in a wheelchair, I want to have that kind of a mentality where I want the hard assignments. I don't want to just live a comfortable Christian life. I don't want to live in fear. I want to be a man of faith that says, you know what? Give me the giants. Because it's not me that's going to slay them. It is God. How many of us today as men are retiring and we're backing away? And if you're my age or older, here's what you need to be thinking today. We need to be leading the young men into war. Not leaving the door open for them to get run over. You see, it would have been easy for Caleb to say, you know what, I've put in my time. I had a chance to go and other people blew it for me. And so, you know what, I'm just, I'm just going to step aside and let someone else do it. I, I've, I've served enough. You ever been there? You see, here's the reality. Some of us today are sold out and some of us are stalled out. We don't retire until Jesus calls us home. You see, it's here, secondly, after he talks about the person, that he talks about her piety, and he reveals three interesting things. The first is her dedication. He says that she was serving in the temple day and night. She didn't leave. Now, again, in the Greek, it's not clear because it can be interpreted one of two ways. One is that she actually physically lived there. There was housing available for the priests who, remember, they would come and serve for two weeks on a rotation. And so it's possible that she actually lived at the temple complex. The second is the phrase that we say of workaholics, he lives at the office, right? He doesn't literally live at the office, but he is there so much that it feels like that's where he lives. But here's the thing, regardless of whether she actually lived at the temple or whether she was just there so much that it felt like it, do you see how dedicated to God she was? This was a woman who who didn't allow her pain to derail her piety for God, her dependence and reverence on God. And I want to ask you, how dependent on God are you? Because this is not about you and I coming and living at church. It is about us living as the church. It is about every moment of our lives being fully dependent upon Jesus and dedicated to him. So can I ask you, are you living as the church in your home, husbands, wives? In your marriage, are you living as the church? In your parenting, are you living as the church? At your job, are you living as the church? When you're in Walmart and there's 4.2 million people and two checkout stands open, are you living as the church? When you're driving down the highway and that person cuts you off, are you living as the church? You see, the second thing that we see about her piety is her self-denial. This was a woman who fasted. She went without food so she could spend time with God the Father. I wonder today if we polled the church, our church and churches in North America, evangelical churches, and we asked the question on a semi-regular basis. Do you notice I threw in some grace there? On a semi-regular basis, do you participate in the spiritual discipline of fasting? I think the numbers would be incredibly low. We have forsaken this, this discipline of fasting in our lives because food's more important to us than God the Father. I think if we were to poll the churches in North America, we would actually discover that probably the majority of Christians have never even practiced fasting one time. Now, why did Anna fast? It was not to lose weight. It was to gain worship. 
Fasting brings us into the presence of God the Father. And here's what we need to understand about worship. Worship changes the worshiper. And what we're trying to do today with our worship, we're trying to change God. God doesn't change. We're the ones that need to change. And there are times where we need that deep worship where we are fully focused on God the Father and we strip away all of those other things in life and we say, yes, I need food, but God, I need you more. Can I ask you a question? When was the last time that the Father had your full attention? Now let me ask you this question. When was the last time the fridge had your full attention? I think for many of us, food is more of our focus than God the Father. Jesus said after 40 days of fasting, you can't live without bread, right? You can live without bread, but you cannot live without every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Do you have a hunger for the things of God? Does he have your full focus? Do you have his full focus? You see, it's also here that we see her prayer life, and it says that she served with prayer. Most of us don't think of prayer as serving because most of our prayers are self-serving. Anna spent hours in prayer. Most of us struggle to spend minutes in prayer, right? I mean, if we're really honest and we were to sit down for 60 minutes of solid prayer, we're like, who does that? People that are focused on the Father. People that are willing to get rid of the distractions in their life. Why is it that we have hours for gaming but no time for God? Why is it that we have hours to surf the internet but no time to sit with the Savior? Why is it that we have hours to binge watch Netflix but no time for the Word? Why is it that we can mindlessly scroll through Facebook for hours and yet we don't do life face-to-face with God the Father? You see, most of us are not positioning our lives with prayer. We're positioning our lives with entertainment. And we want to be entertained today. Instead of coming into the presence of God and allowing him to do a work in our hearts, we just want it to be this outward entertainment that really has no lasting effect or change on our lives. Corey ten Boom, who was a woman during the war who hid Jews from the Germans and was ultimately caught and sentenced to a concentration camp, has an amazing quote about prayer. She asked this simple question, is prayer your steering wheel or your spare tire? And I think for many of us today, prayer has become our spare tire because this is the statement we make all the time in the church. I guess all we can do now is pray. Why is it our last resort instead of our first? I often wonder if when we get to heaven and Jesus reveals our real life of how we lived and, and what really mattered most, I wonder if we won't find out that our most productive moments are the moments that we spent in prayer. Just talking to God letting him do a work in our lives and in the lives of people around us. You see, it's here, thirdly, that she praised. And what's amazing is, remember, Simeon was holding baby Jesus, and Mary and Joseph are there, and Simeon is singing this song, and Anna walks up, and what does she do? She just joins in. Worship is an invitation, not an investigation. And you and I are invited to join in the praise. 
Now, what's amazing to me here is it would have been really easy for her to allow her pain to get in the way of her praise. To spend her life bitter and mad at God because it hadn't worked out the way that she wanted. And that's where some of us are at today. There's this blockage in our life that's keeping us from praise, and it's called poison. There are some of us today, we just flat out don't feel like praising. Have you ever been there where you're like, I know here that I'm supposed to praise Jesus, but right here it's empty. I don't feel like worship today. I don't feel like praising Jesus today. Can I ask you, what was it that Anna was doing before she praised? She was praying. Prayer positions us for praise. And I think one of the reasons that we don't feel like praising, that we don't have praise-filled lives, is because we don't have prayer-covered lives. Why did Anna worship the moment she saw Jesus? She'd found what she was looking for. What did the shepherds do when they found Jesus? They worshipped. What did the wise men do when they found Jesus? They worshipped. And it is so easy for you and I to allow our problems to prevent us from praise. To allow our pain to prevent us from praise. She focused on the Savior, not on her sorrows. How many of us today are focused on our worry and not on our worship? Now church, that doesn't mean that we don't grieve the hard things of life. It means this, that God, not grief, has the last word on your worry. So let me ask you, what are you going to praise God for today? And some of you right now, you're like, man, my marriage is a wreck. My bank account's broken. This, this, this. I have nothing to praise God for, and yet you just took a breath. Your heart just beat one more time. God gave you just a few more moments of life. Can you praise him for that? You see, so many of us, we're we're looking at all of the reasons why we can't worship instead of looking to Jesus. It's not about your circumstances. That's not why you praise. Praise is not based on your circumstances. It is based on Christ who never changes. So let me ask you, are you you basing your worship on your circumstances or on Christ? Because I'm telling you, if if you're basing it on your circumstances, that's not praise. That's just a party. And there are some of us today, we, we go through life, and we go from one party to the next party to the next party, but there's no praise in our life because all of the partying is based on our circumstance. It was never based on Jesus Christ. You see, it's here that you and I see that we are not even told the words to her worship. Isn't that amazing? I mean, I read this, and I'm like, but what did she, what did she say? What were the words? It doesn't matter. Worship is not about the words. It is about the heart. And I think it's time for us to fully understand that because we can sit here and we can mouth a bunch of words through worship and call it worship. It's about our hearts before God. You see, it's here lastly that we see her proclamation. And what did she proclaim? She proclaimed Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Simeon was moved by God. Mary marveled at God. And Anna was a messenger of God. And I would say to you that until we are moved, until we marvel, we're probably not going to be messengers. So let me ask you, have you been moved by God? Has he done a work in your heart? Are you marveling at God? Or or have you just kind of gotten to where you're taking God for granted? Are you a messenger of God? And what is the message you're sharing? Do you notice here that Anna doesn't talk about herself? She talks about her Savior. To everyone who is looking, everyone like Anna that was like excited about Jesus, she just goes and she just tells them about her Savior. How much, li- how much of your life do you spend promoting self versus proclaiming the Savior? 
the Lord Jesus Christ. And you notice here that she proclaimed the redemption, the rescue and redemption of Israel. What does it mean to be redeemed? It means that you and I go from being people who have little to no worth to God doing a work and redeeming us to where we become people of great worth. Now, I've got a present that I want to give to one person in here today. Most presents are wrapped, and we don't know what we're getting, right? And sometimes we get really disappointed. But here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to full disclosure this present, okay? Here's the present that I'm going to give you, okay? It's right here in my hand. It's this piece of paper. Now, let me tell you something about this piece of paper before... I ask who wants it, and you put your hand up. This piece of paper used to be worth, I believe, about two cents. But because it is well used and it's been written on, it's not even good for using as paper what it was intended for. So in all practical purposes, what I'm giving you is absolutely worthless. Now let me ask you a question. Who still wants this gift. Trin, you want to come up? You can step right up through here, okay? Now, I want you to open up your gift, and we're going to turn this mic on because I'm going to have you read what that says. Can you read my terrible handwriting? (laughs) Yeah. This piece of paper is redeemable for $50. So it's not quite worthless, right? So here's the question. Would you like to hold on to that pretty much worthless piece of paper or would you like to redeem it for Mr. Grant? What would you like to do? Do you want to hold on to something that really has no value or would you like to redeem that for $50? I figured you would. Merry Christmas. You're welcome. Do you know how most of us are doing life today? This. We look in the mirror and what do we see? This. And we complain about all of what we see and we're like, man, I don't look good. I'm this, I'm this. And we're constantly trashing God's incredible creation. How many of us that have been redeemed are still living this way? Like with some worthless piece of paper that's been written on and used up already. Now, I know something about Trent. When she gets done with this service, she's going to tell everybody about what happened, right? She's going to say stuff like this. Man, when you go to Mitchell Breen Church, you want to pay attention because Pastor Giles might hand out 50 bucks. And you don't want to fall asleep. And some of you are going to, well, what did I miss? Right? She's going to go tell everyone why. Because getting this redeemed, something that was absolutely worthless for something of great worth, is a big deal. So why aren't we telling people we've been redeemed? Why are we still living this way, church? It's because we're listening to the lies of the enemy. Here's the thing that you need to understand. When God redeemed you, he didn't redeem you just to go from a worthless piece of paper to 50 bucks. You are worth so much more than 50 bucks. The Bible says you're priceless. 
Do you really believe that? Because if you really believe that on the cross of Calvary, Jesus Christ paid for your debt and he redeemed you to a new life and you are now a priceless child of God, why would you not go tell everyone about that? And you have a choice. You can live this way. Or you can let go of this and you can hold on to the treasure that God says you are. Anna simplified the season because she made it about the Savior. And when we make it about the Savior, two things happen. Serving him and sharing him. Up on the stage with me are baskets or boxes, bags. That's what they are. Bags of food. And on each bag is a name of a family with an address and a phone number. And what I'm going to do after I pray is invite you to come and to take a bag, the adult in the household, a college kid, if you're in high school and your parents are okay with you doing that, and you're going to take that bag with a full meal for a full family, and you're going to drive to that address, and you're going to knock on the door, and you're going to deliver that food to them, and they're probably going to ask you this question, where'd you get my name? Because let's be honest, it's a little freaky when people show up with food and, and, and you need that, right? It's a little scary at times. And you can be honest and say, I don't know, but someone knew about your situation they called the church. And Safeway and a couple of other businesses, Mike Beebe and the heating and cooling, they put all this together and the church is just delivering it. And here's what you need to know, God loves you. That's why you're getting this this Christmas. And then I want you to ask them, can I pray with you? And some people are going to say yes, and some people are going to say no. Don't get offended if they say we don't want you to pray. Don't get mad at them, okay? We're there to serve and to love them. Go get in your car and say a short prayer for them. Don't sit on the curb for three hours, okay? We're serving people, not stalking people, okay? There's a difference, You're going to freak them out if you do that. But this is what Christmas looks like. This is how we simplify the season, by making it about someone other than ourselves. Jesus first, serving others second. Let's pray. God, thank you for this incredible season that we are about to celebrate. That moment that you allowed the greatest treasure of heaven, your son Jesus Christ, to come to earth to die for us. And Father, we want to celebrate it by by loving people around us, by giving that gift of love to others. So Father, would you help us to be your hands and feet, for we pray these things in your name. Amen. Let's be dismissed and come get a bag.